You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been talking, uh, for those who have been here, I've been talking about how Christians should respond to government directives that infringe on the church and on our ability to gather together for worship. It's a subject that brings more heat than light, it seems, unfortunately. People everywhere have opinions and beliefs about this, and some hold to- so strongly to them that they're willing to join in public protests in defiance of state laws. So I asked the questions last uh, the last two weeks. Should Christians ever defy the government? And if so, when and how should they defy them? It's a topic the Apostle Paul talks pretty plainly about in Romans chapter 13 and in other places in the Bible. The Apostle Peter talks about it as well, and indeed Jesus Christ himself talks about it. I hope I was able to show that the answer is not always black and white. There are many shades of grey when it comes to submitting to the government, and and godly thinking Christians arrive at different conclusions for pretty solid reasons. And my conclusion was that the current lockdowns and the bans on public gatherings are not attempts by the government to close down the church and to stop the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, I believe our Christian duty is to obey these rules. But I'm willing to concede that smarter and godlier Christians than I have chosen the opposite tack, and they're prepared to risk the wrath of the government by protesting in the streets. And smarter and godlier pastors than I have chosen to open their church doors to public gathered worship in defiance of the government, and some have been arrested and jailed for that. But for any Christian to imagine that they alone have the right answer and the correct response and that everyone else must follow their example is at best arrogant. At worst, it's sinful. And it's quite simply legalism. But even though I delivered two weeks of fairly long and solid sermons on this topic, the choice you make is not my greatest concern. In fact, I am far less concerned that we should all come to the same conclusion than that whatever conclusion you come to, you're doing it on what you are convinced are solid biblical grounds. Personal preference should never be our basis for accepting or rejecting the government's authority about any issue. Rather, we should be searching out the scriptures to know the mind of God. And on that, we make our decisions. For as we'll read in our passage today in Romans 14, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans 14 in preparation, um, as we'll read in our passage today, Paul writes, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and each of us will give account of himself to God. So come judgment day, will you be able to stand with a clear conscience before the Lord and hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Will he commend you for your decision to obey or disobey the government? Or will you be left stammering and humiliated before him for the path you've chosen? But don't imagine that you'll escape judgment just because you're a Christian. It's true that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all sin and removes all condemnation from those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Yet scripture also tells us that we will have to give an account for our words. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 13, I tell you, on the day of judgment, 
People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And it's not only our words we'll have to give an account for, it's our actions too. That should make us think very carefully about what we say and what we do. Which leads me to my topic today. Christians have arrived at very different conclusions and even opposite conclusions about whether to defy the government in these COVID lockdown times. And sadly, they haven't extended much grace to each other for these past 18 months. So how then are we to treat each other when our views can be so wildly different on these matters? There are some things, of course, every Christian must stand up for unflinchingly. Things like, who is Jesus Christ? Is he just a very wise man, maybe even the best man who ever lived? Or is he the highest, most exalted of all created beings? Or is he God in the flesh? And what must I do to be saved? Am I basically pretty good, good at heart, so that God is sort of obliged to save me? Or can I do enough good works, maybe, to gain his approval? Or is there nothing I can do but cry out to him for mercy? These are questions we must be prepared to answer and defend and even to fight over unto death if we have to because they're questions that go to the heart of the gospel. But your decision about whether to submit or to defy COVID lockdowns is not a gospel issue. Therefore, we are not permitted to fight over it. We are permitted, of course, to have different opinions and different convictions on non-gospel issues. But as a friend of mine likes to say, we're allowed to disagree, but we are not allowed to be disagreeable. And our text today is Romans 14, continuing directly on from the chapter that shaped so much of our discussion last week and so much of the controversy around it. And in it, Paul addresses the topic of how to handle disagreements in an edifying and a God-honouring way. So this must be an important issue to Paul, and therefore, of course, to God who inspired Paul to write it, because it takes up more than a whole chapter. We'll have to pick it up in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where we left off last week, so we can get the whole context of it, and we'll go through a little bit into the start of Romans chapter 15, so you can see that this is a fairly extensive thing that Paul has to say about it. So starting in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans 14, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, 
but not to quarrel over opinions. One who believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what is except, uh, well, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You may have noticed in that passage that Paul talks a bit about the weak and the strong in faith in regard to some seemingly simple and even meaningless maybe decisions about eating and special days. Regardless of whether you're a meat eater or a vegetarian, whether you strictly observe a Sabbath day or whether you're pretty relaxed about it, 
there's a fair chance you consider yourself to be a strong Christian. No doubt, based on Paul's criteria about eating and drinking, we all consider ourselves strong. I'm not sure that any of us are vegetarian because we think that's what God expects of us, nor that any of us quibble over holy days and Sabbaths and the like. And that's good because none of these are fundamentals of our Christian faith. They're all peripheral issues. They have no bearing on whether we are Christians or not. Not everyone agrees with that, though. There are some churches and some denominations that sit under the broader Christian umbrella that are convinced that the church should meet on the Sabbath, on Saturday, and not on Sunday. They're a relatively small slice of the Christian church, but they do exist. And there's probably somewhere vegetarian churches as well. The point is, these issues should not be divisive. I once worked for a Christian service organisation alongside a Seventh-day Adventist man for whom Saturday was the only correct day for the church to meet. But we were able to have Christian fellowship without causing any problems because we both understood that that's not a gospel issue. We both believe the same thing in all the important parts of Christianity. Sadly, a lot of Christians don't understand this which is why Paul had to write this part of his letter. Too many Christians place these side issues on the same level as the major doctrines about the Trinity and the deity of Christ and things like that. Romans, issues like Sabbath observance, the timing of the second coming, the appropriate mode of baptism, are not on the same level like the major doctrines. So we should never divide over those things. And Christians often, unfortunately, divide over these less important issues, and Paul condemns that attitude. There are some things we must divide over, as I said earlier, but never over something that doesn't directly attack the gospel, which is why eating meat, for example, is not a gospel issue. And it's therefore not something we're permitted to divide over. Because Jesus made clear that what goes into the mouth doesn't defile a person, but what comes out of the mouth, that's what defiles a person. Food, no matter what it is, can't damage your Christian faith and can't take away your salvation. No doubt some would claim that they're doing the right thing by avoiding me. They believe they're setting a good example for others. And based on what Paul says at the end of this chapter, they have a reasonable case. But then, of course, the meat eaters also claim to be doing right because they understand their Christian liberty and they have the confidence to exercise it. They realise that we're not to call anything unclean that God has made clean. So each one is acting according to conscience and each one then claims to be the strong one. But, unfortunately, each one has a tendency to look down their noses at the other's and that's where the damage occurs. Romans 14 is all about how the weak in faith and the strong in faith are to relate to each other. It's fascinating that it follows on from the passage that caused so much controversy last week in Romans 13, where Paul talked about how the church and individual Christians are to relate to government. And it's particularly fascinating when we see the division that is spread through the Christian church on precisely this issue. Now, that division is spread through the world as well. But it's through the 
division through the church that concerns me. Those who were with us last week after I preached Romans 13 would remember that we had a pretty spirited discussion about obedience to the authorities. Some of us hold to almost polar opposite views and the challenge for us when subjects like this become heated is to maintain our love and our acceptance of our brother or sister in Christ who differs to us. The challenge for us is to maintain our unity. And sadly, that's sometimes easier said than done. Early in the lockdowns last year, I was troubled by the way I heard Christians from both sides of the argument criticise each other. One side judged the other as being selfish, only interested in their own freedoms, uncaring about the potential harm they bring to others. And then the other side despised this one as being fearful, so afraid that the government will lock them up that they are unwilling to stand up for Christ, for truth, for the gospel. It became quite bitter at times. I've heard far too many reports for my liking of Christian friendships breaking down because of opposing views about COVID and how we should be handling it. The same thing applies to politics. Christians divide over politics. They are not gospel issues. And it's heartbreaking to see it. We've seen this flare up again in recent times and it disturbs me no end. Have we forgotten how to be civil towards each other? Have we forgotten that Christ died so that we could be one? Paul tells us at the start of chapter 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So which one are you? Are you the weak or are you the strong? Now, some Christians accuse others of being weak in faith because they don't want to gather in defiance of government pronouncements. If they really were Christians, it's sometimes implied, if not said outright, they'd be out there joining the protests and marching in the street. Are they weak because they won't do that? Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. Maybe what some consider weakness is actually strength because these people have put their trust and their confidence in God to work things out instead of trying to take things in their own hands. And maybe they look at the Christian protesters as the weak ones because they appear to have so little faith in God and are so determined to fight this war with carnal weapons rather than spiritual ones. But regardless of which side of the debate you sit on, you are commanded to welcome the brother or sister who differs from you and not to quarrel over opinions. Paul could hardly make that any clearer in the opening sentence of this chapter. He goes on to say in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Maybe we could paraphrase that verse for 2021. Let not the one who protests despise the one who chooses to remain in lockdown. And let not the one who locks down pass judgment on the one who protests. For God has welcomed both of them. So then who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Now that's a serious question that Paul answers here. We shouldn't rush past this question. Where do any of us get off judging a brother or sister in Christ for whom Christ died. It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. Did you hear that? The brother or sister who chooses a different course to you through COVID lockdowns or at election time or anywhere else, assuming they've chosen that path in good conscience, will be upheld by the Lord himself. The criteria is, as Paul puts it in the next verse, that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Believe it or not, the various paths that we have chosen to follow are matters of conscience. At least they are for most Christians. To paraphrase Paul again in verse 6, the one who accepts lockdown stays home in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who rejects it protests in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And guess what? God accepts both of them for acting in accordance with their conscience. Would you then dare to judge and accuse the one God has accepted? Now let's be honest here. All of us, our judgment about COVID and lockdowns and masks is opinions. And we're told not to quarrel over opinions. None of us has done the study ourselves, except, of course, for all the Google searches that we do that tell us only what we want to hear. Isn't it funny how Google makes experts of people who have spent 15 minutes online and who are now convinced they know more than the scientists and doctors and researchers who have devoted a lifetime to study in these areas. You'd laugh about it if it wasn't so dangerous. Now I have to ask which one of us is an experienced public health official. Have we forgotten that none of us are experts and that the experts that the government consults are far more competent than we are in these issues? And have you forgotten that Google searches will only show you more of what it is that you want to see and less and less of the opposing arguments. Google and all the various forms of social media we consult for information is designed to tickle your ears. You don't believe me? Watch the documentary The Social Dilemma. It's disturbing. But we, like sheep, like fools, come to believe that the evidence is overwhelmingly in our favour, and both sides make the same claim. Because we're searching for advice from those who will never tell us something that we don't want to hear. It's like the false prophets in the Old Testament. They only told the kings what they wanted to hear. Again, it would be laughable if the potential consequences were not so serious. Let's skip down. A couple of verses to verse 10 for Paul issues a stern warning there. And we do well to heed this warning. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, we Christians don't have to fear the final judgment. Christ has taken the guilt and the punishment for our sin on his shoulders so that we can live. Our sin was paid for by him so that his sinlessness could be credited to our account. But that doesn't mean that we don't face some sort of judgment. Paul warned us in the last chapter that disobedience to God 
puts us at risk, uh, disobedience, sorry, to the authorities puts us at risk of facing not only the wrath of the authorities, but the wrath of God himself for disobeying his divinely delegated authority. That's a fearful prospect. Paul wrote that to Christians. And here he warns us that we'll have to give an answer to God for our ungodly attitude towards a brother or sister. We really should be much more careful in what we say and what we think. Twenty years ago, Nicole Norderman sang a hauntingly beautiful song about how casually we approach this fiercely holy God. Oh, let me not forget to tremble, she sang. I fear we've become so comfortable, so complacent in our Christianity that we sometimes forget to tremble before this God. For he could destroy each one of us in a heartbeat. And he would be justified in doing that. We would only be getting what we deserve. It's only his grace and his mercy that allows us to breathe for another day. We would all do well to take a little more seriously the commands of Scripture. And we would all do well to spend more time judging ourselves before we judge another for whom Christ died. And you know what? That other person will have to give an account to God for his or her actions and attitudes too. Leave it to God to judge. You don't need to do it. So what are we to do when a brother or sister in Christ takes a different stance on anything that is not a threat to the gospel? doesn't matter what it is. If it's not a threat to the gospel, Paul is pretty clear. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. We could say, if your brother is grieved by the way you defy the government, or if your brother is grieved by the way you stay at home in isolation, you're no longer walking in love. Now that's tough. That means sometimes we must subjugate our own freedoms to the weaker Christian. But really, is it that difficult to refrain from exercising our freedom for the sake of another? Every parent does it every day with their children. There are certain things that the parents choose not to watch on TV while the kids are around because they know it will harm their child. They have the freedom to watch those things, but they choose not to. But guess what? They do it willingly. And they do it cheerfully and they don't give it a second thought because they love their child and they only want what's best for their child. That's what Paul's telling us here. We are to love other Christians and especially the ones we think are weak in the same way that a parent loves their child and tries to do nothing that will harm him or her and only things that will build them up. For if your brother is grieved by your protesting or if your Sister is grieved by you isolating, you're no longer walking in love. If you think that a Christian is displaying weakness by submitting to the government or by marching in the streets in protest against it, then you have the responsibility before God to extend them grace and not to criticise them or to condemn them for their choices. That doesn't come naturally to any of us. 
it's hard to suppress your frustration or your contempt for someone who you think is clearly responding poorly. But that's what we must do. Don't let anybody tell you that the Christian life is a cakewalk. It's tough. At least it's tough if you want to take it seriously. For you have to do all sorts of things that go against the grain. But do them, we must. So I've been saying the last couple of weeks, I'm far less concerned about whether you think you should be marching in the streets or sitting at home in submission to the government. Godly Christians make both choices in good conscience. Now, my greatest concern about this crisis is the attitude that I've seen displayed by Christians everywhere, around the world, and on both sides of this divide. James Montgomery Boyce, the uh, well-known Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia, wrote, slightly paraphrasing him, the important thing about Romans is that Paul is not even dealing with this issue as one to be resolved, but rather with the attitude that either scorns or condemns the other Christian. That is the issue. Not the marching or the staying home. In other words, whether you stay home in lockdown or whether you protest in the streets, does not matter. So stop arguing about it and stop letting it determine who you'll associate with and whom you'll work with in Christ's service. That's paraphrasing James Montgomery Boyce. They're wise words. He goes on to make a few points about how to get over our destructive tendency to judge believers who do not behave exactly like we do. And he points out from Romans 14, the other Christian does not answer to you, but to God. So pray for them, help them, urge them on. Do everything possible to see that they do well and succeed as Christians. And he says God has already accepted the other Christian as he is or as she is. You don't have to agree with everything that other person is doing any more than they have to agree that everything you're doing is right. But it does mean that you have to accept them as a believer with whom you must be in fellowship. And the other Christian stands by the grace of God. If Jesus feels that the other person needs to change something that they're doing, he will see to it that they change. You can't make it happen anyway. But in the meantime, if Jesus does not bother to change that conduct, then it doesn't matter to him. And finally, you too are accountable to God. Jesus said that we'll have to give an account for every careless word we speak. If that's true, don't you think we have enough to worry about without trying to straighten out the other Christian? We would do well to tremble a little more before him. Time to wrap this up. It is desperately important that we stop our fighting each other and instead fight to maintain Christian unity. I remind you that one of the reasons that Jesus went to the cross was to unite believers, not to divide them, to unite them together as one. He prayed in his high priestly prayer, as it's called in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but only for those who will be, believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me.
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Did you hear Jesus repeat a number of times the purpose that they, we, may be one? Brothers and sisters, you don't have to agree with other Christians about masks or vaccinations or protests or any other thing that's not a gospel issue. But our lack of unity and our lack of grace towards others is a slap in the face to Jesus Christ. It cheapens his sacrifice. That's a serious charge. And it's not one I'd be comfortable trying to defend in the courts of heaven on judgment day. But another victim of our lack of unity is our Christian witness and our evangelistic efforts. Did you notice that? Jesus says in verse 21 that when we are one, the world may believe that you have sent me. And he emphasizes that point by repeating it in verse 23 when he says that when we become perfectly one, the world may know that you sent me. Do you realize how much our efforts to share the gospel with unbelievers is damaged by the bickering, the infighting, the backbiting, the criticism, even the public name-calling that so many Christians seem to indulge in towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. What is attractive about the Christian faith if it attacks its own? Not very much, I'd suggest. We Christians really should be ashamed of ourselves. It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. Far from it. Some things, as I said, are much more important than others. Some things we need to fight for. But it does mean that in all things we are to love our brothers in such a way and with such grace that the world sees unity even in our, in our diversity. Sometimes that means we need to pull our heads in about the the beliefs that we hold so strongly that are not gospel beliefs. Sometimes we need to exercise our liberties, our freedoms, but we can never do it in judgment or criticism of another. As my friend said, we can disagree, but we're not allowed to be disagreeable. Let's all check our mouths, shall we? Check our attitudes, check our hearts. Let's get the plank out of our own eyes before we get so concerned about the speck that's in the eye of a brother and sister who differs from us. And when we do that, surely the faith, Christian faith, will become more attractive to the world. Jesus said it would. They will know that the Father sent him when we're in unity. And surely then there'll be a lot more peace in our lives, a lot more harmony, a lot more love and grace. One day, you know, you'll have to spend eternity in heaven with these same brothers and sisters that you maybe judge or despise now. Now might be a good time to start getting that under control. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that each one of us has held 
wrong attitudes in our hearts, even if we haven't necessarily spoken them out. Too often, Lord, we've been vocal in our criticism or our judgment of other believers who are acting according to their own consciences. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for that. And Lord, we thank you that the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, covers over and washes away those sins that we're so guilty of. But Lord, without the empowering of your Holy Spirit, without the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, we don't have the power to change. So we ask, Lord, that you will work in our hearts to increase the grace, the love, the acceptance of our brothers and sisters and decrease, Lord, and ultimately wash away the judgment and criticism that dwells there in the dark, dark recesses of our souls, of our minds. Jesus, we pray that we would become perfectly one in this life, that we would not fight and resist until the very last day to submit our knee to you in these matters, but we would do it now. And Lord, let us be an example to other believers. Let us be an example to the world of what it means to be a Christian who is ultimately in submission to his God, his holy God, before whom he should tremble. Lord, I pray that this coming week your Holy Spirit will convict us for every harsh word, every negative thought and attitude you'll convict us quickly about it so that we can repent of it on the spot Lord and that the work of sanctification that you are doing in us can be accelerated and not dragged Jesus none of us wants to devalue your sacrifice none of us wants to spit in your face by the things we do so we we ask Lord that you will teach us to honour you in all areas of our life, in every day of our lives. And Lord, by that, we pray that our neighbours, our workmates and others who don't yet know the glorious truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation would be attracted, would come to ask us, why is it that that everyone else seems to be fighting about these things and yet you don't, you're at peace and you love those who differ with you. What is it that inspires that? Lord, I pray that you you open those doors for us to share the good news of the work that Jesus Christ has done on that cross and continues to do every day up until the final day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is precious. Thank you, Lord, that as we read, as we study, as we sit under your word in preaching, that you use that to achieve your plans and purposes, that it will never fail. For you have promised, Lord, that your word will never fail. It goes out like a hammer, you said, Lord, and sometimes that's painful to us. But it's necessary that you shatter the walls down, the rocks, the hard rocks in our heart and make them soft. So Lord, 
as much as our flesh resists those things, our spirit cries out for them. Do this work in us, Lord, through your word and through our brothers and sisters who encourage us and build us up. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God one day. Thank you for that. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.